Welcome to the Backyard Professor Responds videos. I'm going to do a second part of my response to Elder Kevin A. Hamilton of the Quorum of the Seventies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a BYU speech he gave just recently within the last couple of weeks in 2023 on why a church. Before I do, I would like to announce that this Sunday, two nights from now, on February, let's see, today's the 3rd, 4th, 5th, February 5th, 6 p.m. in the United States Mountain Time, I will have on BYU professor and scholar Trevin Hatch, who is an expert on the Jewish Jesus. He has written a book demonstrating why the Mormon understanding of Jesus needs to situate him accurately and more correctly in the context of Judaism. Shocking as it may seem to some, Jesus is not and was not a Mormon any more than Jesus is not and was not a Christian. So you don't want to miss Sunday night. In the meantime, let's get started on my response, part two to the second half of Elder Hamilton's discussion, trying to convince us we need a church. Every once in a while, I hear someone say something like, I don't like my ward. It is so unfriendly. Or sometimes, I don't get much out of sacrament meeting. I'm not even sure why I even go. But a ward is not about what you can get, but what you can give. It is the laboratory where we learn the gospel and learn to love and serve one another. Consider the response of President Spencer W. Kimball when someone once asked him, what do you do when you find yourself caught in a boring sacrament meeting? President Kimball thought for a moment, then replied, I don't know. I've never been in one. With all his church experience, President Kimball undoubtedly had sat through his share of meetings where the speaker read their talk or spoke in a monotone or gave a travelogue. But President Kimball understood that we do not go to sacrament meeting to be entertained, but to worship the Lord, renew our covenants, and be taught by the Spirit. Well, President Kimball must be one of only tens of millions then. This is just a truly dishonest, silly response by President Kimball. He's not fooling anybody. Let's see what else we've got. Occasionally, I have heard people say that those who serve in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve are only human and are capable of making mistakes. While it is true that we are all fallible human beings, the safety net for all of us is the council system that we use at every level of the church. Decisions in the Lord's church always require a unanimous council. Okay, so now he's brainwashing us. We have many examples of the falsehood of this phony presentation, going all the way back to Joseph Smith's day, coming all the way up into today, where unanimous council has just never been had. This is faith-promoting mythology, 
not reality. From the general handbook, we read, all members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles are prophets, seers, and revelators. Together, they form the Council of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Under the direction of the Lord and by unanimous voice, this council has authority to declare and interpret doctrine and establish policy for the church. When the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve speak in unity, they speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm supposed to believe now that it's unanimous agreement that gives authority? I'm not buying it. Christ. Another comment that I hear from time to time, especially on social media, is, and I quote, be the change, as in, I will be the change, you know, as in, I will stay in the church and work for change from within. But how does this square with the invitation to simply be humble followers of Christ? Because the leaders are continually stumbling on backward social issues and humble followers of Christ are literally nowhere required to say yes to everything leaders say and do. That's how. Christ never said, stop using our brains and stop trying to improve ourselves and those we love. Christ. Besides, true change, the kind of change that makes a difference in the eternities, comes from within. We change our hearts and minds and then our circumstances. At last, he finally says something I can truly agree with. I occasionally meet people that feel it is their absolute duty to point out what they see as shortcomings or failings of the Lord's church. They feel that they are loyal to the Savior but opposed to certain teachings of his church. Yes, um, as an eternal and uncreated intelligence, according to Joseph Smith's own doctrine, not just a blob of dumb protoplasm, it is my moral duty to call out moral shortcomings and problems of the church when they occur, and unfortunately these days... There are far too serious and too many problems that are occurring that truly need to be adjusted, if not corrected. President Dallin H. Oaks has addressed this. Some who use personal wisdom, reasoning or wisdom, to resist prophetic direction give themselves a label borrowed from elected bodies, the loyal opposition. 
However appropriate for a democracy, there is no warrant for this concept in the government of God's kingdom where questions are honored, but opposition is not. Dallam H. Oaks is not my God. And I shall continue being guided by the infinite source, not Oaks' arm of flesh and limited understanding. As I visit with members across the church, I sometimes hear things like, I don't support the church's policy on, and then you fill in the blank. Or, I don't agree with the way the church does this or that. Could I suggest an alternative approach? Yes, you can, but only if it's valid. So let's see what you have. Substitute the word Savior or Lord or Jesus Christ in place of the church. As in, I don't support the Savior's policy on you fill in the blank. Or I don't agree with the way Jesus Christ does this or that. No, the church is not equivalent to Jesus Christ. The men in charge are not infallible. Sorry, this is a no-go. The Old Testament story of Uzzah is instructive. David had just been anointed king of Israel and was transporting the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark was a symbol of God's presence, of his glory and majesty, and when first given to Israel, the ark was placed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and only the high priest could approach it, and then only on the Day of Atonement. When transporting the ark, the priests were required to use poles running through the rings on the sides to carry it. On this day, as the ark crossed Nashon's threshing floor, it became unstable, the scripture says, for the oxen shook it. And Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God to steady it. The punishment was swift and severe. Quote, God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Close quote. Well, the symbolism for today is obvious. Don't steady the ark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks for making my point. There's no reason to agree to this purely ridiculous literalism. In this life, we walk by faith, not by sight. In spite of our very best efforts, we sometimes just see through the glass darkly. It's confusing. But the Lord, who knows the end from the beginning, sees things differently than we do. As Isaiah said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts 
than your thoughts. Sometimes we just don't know every reason and every rationale behind every point of doctrine or every church policy. Exactly correct. Thanks again for making yet another one of my points. There is no reason whatsoever to ever trust the arm of flesh, but rely on the Lord alone. His infinitude will make up for all shortcomings, mistakes, disasters, and missed opportunities, and lost time that I myself and anyone else accumulate. Infinitude is vastly more than any man-made flesh doctrine the church invents. When this happens, we simply move forward in faith, trusting, hoping, believing. In due time, we will know all things, everything. In the meantime, we look to the first presidency and the 12 who lead his church for inspired guidance and counsel. No, I keep my eye on Jesus, trusting in him not on the arm of puny, fallible, mistaken flesh. This question of why a church is an important issue to wrestle through. As the Savior taught in Luke chapter 14, wherefore settle this in your hearts that you will do the things which I shall teach you and command you. Luke 14 says nothing of the kind. I suspect he meant some other scripture. You can read that for yourself. We have to get this settled deep in our hearts. Otherwise, we are at risk of being as children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Now, that is actually a very good description of the church and its ever-changing doctrines and temple ordinances and principles and policies, I might add, My dear brothers and sisters, this is the message. We need a church. And this church is literally... No, we do not need a church. We have, that is, assuming that the Book of Mormon is correct, we have something uncalculatably more magnificent, grand, and all-encompassing, an infinite atonement based in infinite love, as he has said, something inconceivably greater and safer for learning truth than a church run by the fallible arm of flesh.
his church, the Savior Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are inseparably joined together. The Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency who direct his church actually speak in his name. As the Savior taught Joseph Smith in the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, I simply do not believe this man-made doctrine of the arm of the flesh. Hamilton and I served for five years in Africa. One of our area 70s and a very dear friend was Elder Kumbalani Malechi. Kumbalani learned of the church in 1980 in a township outside of Durban, South Africa, at the age of 15 when he was baptized. A few years later, at age 19, he was called to serve as a full-time missionary in the London, England Mission, one of the first black members from South Africa to serve a full-time mission. Now, it might be hard for us to imagine, but Elder Malachi had never heard of the previous church policy that restricted black Africans from the priesthood. He simply had never been exposed to it. One day, as he and his companion were out tracting, they introduced themselves as missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to a man who then asked, you are a Mormon? Before they could say a word, the man continued, and you are black? Elder Malachi says, I looked at my hands to see if I was still black. And indeed, I was. Finally, I said to him, yes, I am black, and I am a Mormon. The man continued, you are lost, brother. How can you be a member of a racist church? Mormons do not accept blacks in their church. This stopped Elder Malachi in his tracks since he had never heard this before. As they left the man's house, Elder Malachi turned to us and asked his companion, what was that all about? And the companion did his best to answer his questions, and in doing so, he informed Elder Malachi of the priesthood and temple restrictions which previously existed for members of black African descent. Elder Malachi thought about this new information for several days and finally concluded that he could no longer be a member of the church, let alone serve as a missionary. He made an appointment with his mission president to let him know that he would be returning home and resigning his membership. I now quote from Elder Malechi, President Pinniger had me come to his office, and I rehearsed what had happened and voiced my decision to return home to South Africa. I told him that I could not be a member of a racist church. After listening patiently to me, my mission president said, Elder Malechi, all that I know is that all worthy men can now be ordained to the priesthood and that Joseph Smith saw the Father and the Son in the sacred grove. So the mission president is ignorant of the invented first vision, which had absolutely nothing to do with the racism of the church. But you notice how, in a brainwashed fashion, he has to use it as part of his testimony. How convenient and yet utterly irrelevant, right? 
And this doesn't erase the church being racist. It also proves that the church hid this from this young black man and never gave him information that was vital to having a true historical understanding of the racist reality of its doctrine, which could have helped him understand a much more accurate decision to make before being committal to a church. This is fundamentally disingenuous and, I might add, entirely dishonest on the church's part. But let's keep watching. President Penninger, he continues, helped me understand two things during that exchange. One, while it is true that the church did not ordain black people to the priesthood for a season, that is the past, and we do not have reasons as to why it happened. That is a direct lie. You bet we have reasons why it happened. This is the church's essay written and published on the church's website, it was just Brigham Young's policy that caused this racist approach. Not a revelation of truth from the Lord Jesus Christ. And two... He helped me understand that since I have a testimony of the restored gospel, including Joseph Smith having been called of God to restore Jesus Christ's church to the earth, why should I walk away? Because what you were taught is the faith-promoting, obviously whitewashed view of the church as is proven by your own ignorance of its own racist teachings in the past and not being honest and forthright enough with you to indicate this very exceptional issue with black people. That's why. As Helaman taught his sons, it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down because of the rock upon which you are built. How do we build upon the rock of our Redeemer? We build upon the Savior as we come to him, and we come to him as we receive his authorized ordinances and make and keep the associated covenants. These ordinances and covenants are found in his church. We renew these covenants as we come to his church every Sabbath day and partake of the sacrament. This is how we come to Christ. This is how we walk with him. This is how we realize our full divine potential. So he is a faithful, brainwashed man in the church. 
as you know that. If that's where he finds happiness, then more power to him. I find happiness in living authentically from within my own eternal core. In a coming day, every knee shall bend and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Messiah. All flesh shall see him together at once at the same time. We will all be under the same obligation to repent and come to him. All who will receive the blessings of exaltation will be required to make and keep the same baptismal and temple covenants, which are only found in his church, administered by his priesthood. We are the children of the covenant. This is our divine destiny and potential. This is our true identity. Jesus said to come to him through our hearts, not a man-made organization. Jesus nowhere in his mortal life said, Come unto me through a church. He said, Come unto me. Full stop. And so... That's pretty much the essence of the teaching that this gentleman from the Quorum of the Seventy tried to teach the BYU youth and the college kids. And I am singularly unpersuaded by the manipulation of attempting to put a man-made structure in between me and an infinite deity who provides the actual saving and exalting power to absolutely everything in the universe. I said that correct. Everything in the universe for one very simple reason, because using the Book of Mormon itself back onto this gentleman, if it's infinite in power, length, time, endurance, and strength, then literally nothing can be lost or left undone or left mistaken or left broken, or left partial, or left evil, or left unredeemed, or left unsaved, or left unexalted. I would propose that the church does not grasp how its own doctrine of an infinite atonement from its supposedly most correct book, and a man can get closer to God by abiding by its precepts than any other book, not closer to God through the church. Notice, Joseph Smith didn't say that. Then this infinite atonement 
literally demonstrates, once it is studied, the full ramifications and implications of the infinite, the church is simply superfluous. So thanks for watching. The Backyard Professor responds. I'm enjoying doing these. I have many, many more I will produce as time permits. In the meantime, don't forget Sunday evening, 6 p.m. Mountain Time in the United States of America. Two nights from now, I will be having the BYU scholar on, Trevin Hatch, and we will discuss more of the New Testament ideas and the issue of what was Jesus and why that genuinely makes a difference.